Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, the crisis podcast, we're going to focus in on cybersecurity with the expert, Dr. Jessica Barker. Before we listen to that, though, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Now, we all know the very real threat of cyber attacks is at the top of most businesses' risk matrix. Every day we read of yet another big business or government organization that's been hacked and attacked. Uh, But what really jumped out at me from the chat with Jessica was that she's an expert in human behavior. And that's hugely relevant when you're talking about cybersecurity because leaders need to take human behavior into account when putting in place operational changes, including new cybersecurity measures, as your network is only as safe as your weakest point. Now, bringing teams and people with you uh, in terms of their behaviors and internal communications in general are often ignored during a crisis because people are focused in on the external elements. That's really dangerous. So, Karen, let's start with you. How do you make the case for those stakeholder groups to be heard and involved in a crisis situation? Yeah, I'm a very big believer that your employees are your greatest asset and can be your greatest ally in a times of crisis. Like really, employees are your brand ambassadors. They're the face and voice of your organization. And in my practice, when I'm counseling clients, I spend a lot of time focused on effective stakeholder relations and employee engagement. And I typically always advocate for what I call an inside-out approach to communications, which means anytime you're communicating externally outside of the organization, you should be first communicating internally to employees. Um, I always push for sharing that information internally first to make sure that employees are aware of information that could impact them or you know, hear it from us first before they're reading it in the news. And I think I've always, I haven't been challenged by that. And maybe I'm just fortunate in the clients that I've worked with, or maybe I've been able to make a compelling case. But I think um, as a rule, generally, most organizations that I've had the pleasure of working with understand the importance of that internal stakeholder and employee communication in a crisis. What were you, Gary? I think it's interesting what Karen says. Um, I think in my experience, a lot of people recognize the importance of internal communications but don't necessarily always follow through with it and I think a crisis situation is one of those situations when it is easy to forget about the internal engagements um, because there's so much else happening and I think you know it's one of the things that's going to be interesting as, as we emerge from the current COVID pandemic is the extent to which businesses have learned a lesson of how important Uh, the communication within an organization is look I think there are two big reasons why you need to take that internal communications very seriously in in a crisis and the first is that the situation that you're in will create enormous institutional stress Uh, and if you want your teams performing at the level required to get you through it then you need not only clarity in terms of communication but you also need to build a shared sense of mission that everybody can get behind um, and that only comes through good communications. And the second is that employees today 
are very demanding of what they expect from their employer uh, and they have the tools at their disposal to make their concerns public if they don't feel they're being listened to internally or they don't feel that their employer is behaving in a manner in which they should. And we see increasing examples of cases where an external reputational issue is actually caused directly from internal communications or, or a lack of internal communications. And if you have that kind of commentary on your business going on, it can make it a lot more difficult to manage whatever the primary issue may be. Uh, I think one example that comes to mind is a case that we worked on last year when a food business was trying to make the case to government that it should be allowed to stay open during the first lockdown. And although their overarching objective was political, one of the things that we cottoned onto relatively quickly was that the most important factor was actually ensuring that employees understood the value of the business and the role that they had to play during that lockdown because if they weren't happy and they didn't bond around that shared sense of mission and feel that value it was all over regardless of what the policymakers decided uh, and, and therefore our console was to focus much more on the employee communications and we were ultimately successful as a result and i think we've seen a lot more of that thinking during covid and one thing i'll be keeping an eye out over the next coming months is is the extent to which that carries through as we emerge into into whatever the future brings it's really interesting isn't it because my overriding view is that this is a process point because the highly regulated industries and we heard from phil mayer in the first episode of white swan you know people like airlines, they have a requirement to have the right people around the table in a crisis response, and they always have someone to speak internally. But that doesn't always happen for the less regulated industries where there's not the formalized approach. And as a result, comms is really lumped in all as one uh, without breaking it down to the different stakeholder groups. And that's a problem and one that we all need to try and counter when we're in the room for crises. So, right, that's really interesting. Uh, let's hear from Jessica Noy about cybersecurity. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with a senior figure from the world of business so we can learn about their crisis experiences and the lessons you need to hear. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jessica Barker, co-founder and co-CEO of Syngenta, a cybersecurity agency. Jessica is a respected leader on the human side of cybersecurity and one of a few go-to experts used by the media to explain the growing threat that every organization faces. Jessica, welcome to White Swan. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you again. And you've become one of the most recognizable experts on cybersecurity around. How did you get to that place? So I started working in cybersecurity pretty much 10 years ago, almost to the day, actually. And um, it wasn't something I saw in my future. It wasn't something I had planned. But essentially, I was headhunted for a cybersecurity firm that wanted somebody who could look at this field, look at this problem through the lens of human behavior. And so with my background in sociology, politics and civic design, um, they started talking to me and eventually I was I was hired for that job and really didn't ever look back. I, I realized in my first year in industry what an interesting topic it is, what an evolving problem it is and how much people really are at the heart of it. So I, I just carried on in the industry and um, at the time, the human side of cybersecurity in the industry was not particularly 
evolved. Not too many people were working on it. And I used to go to conferences and things. And my peers in industry would kind of say, what does the human side of cybersecurity even mean? What do you actually do? Um, but what I've seen, fortunately, over the last few years in particular, is a rise in understanding of the human side. More and more organizations actually recognizing that people are just as important in this topic as technology. And so, so here I am getting to work on some fascinating projects. Scott, I guess it's like any change management job, really. If you don't bring people with you and make sure you're removing barriers to human interaction and change, you're not going to be successful. Absolutely. And if we think about technology and if we think about cybersecurity, of course, people are at the heart of every stage of the development of technology, the design of technology, the build, the use, the abuse uh, or misuse of technology. And so, of course, when we think about problems of cybersecurity, people are absolutely fundamental in every element. Now, in our world, we face a lot of crises, which include cyber attacks. And if you speak to any leaders out there in the world of business, they are saying to us that cyber attacks are at the top end of the risk matrix. So you must be seeing a lot more work in this area as a result. How prevalent is the problem? And has it got dramatically worse in recent years? Is that It feels it has. Is that true? So what we have seen is a, I mean, a huge rise, not just in cybersecurity issues, but also in awareness of them, in understanding of them, in people being more willing to talk about them. So, so yes, cybercrime has risen. And if we look at the statistics, you know, the FBI said in 2019 that the annual cost of cybercrime was 3.5 billion globally. Um, Accenture have calculated that a, a cybercrime incident costs the average organization organization, $13 million. And so cybercrime is is costly, it's increasing, but also people are talking about it more. People are more open about it. There is more regulation around having to disclose breaches. And so some of it is actually just organizations, A, identifying they've been attacked more uh, than they were able to identify in the past, and B, more, more willing and able and more pressured to talk about them. Now, obviously, you're taking a look at this often through the human lens of, of, of human behavior. Um, is human behavior to blame for most of the breaches in terms of cyber attacks? Or is it simply the systems which organizations put in place aren't robust enough or don't take into account human behavior enough? Yeah, well, I mean, if, we, if we're looking at the systems, who builds the systems? Who puts the systems in place? Who configures the systems? Who tests them? That's all humans. We often see in cybersecurity, um, and we've, we've had this unfortunate history in the industry of blaming people. And there's a, a narrative that really frustrates me, a saying that is very common, people are the weakest link. And I find that so frustrating um, because it's blaming the end users for problems that can often be attributed to systems that have been poorly built, or exactly as you have just said, Gavin, systems that don't take account of human behavior or training and awareness that doesn't take account of human behavior, that communicates in a more technical way, that doesn't empower and enable people. So I think there are lots of, there's lots of complicated reasons, actually, why people can be at the heart of a cybersecurity problem that is not as simple as just saying, oh, it's someone making a mistake. 
most people want to do their job, they want to do it well, and they don't want to put their job or their company at risk. So the problems are a little bit more complicated than that. And the onus is certainly on us as cybersecurity professionals to communicate more clearly, to listen to what people are telling us about security, and to make sure that we help them be more secure. Absolutely. And to explain to them why these things are happening. Because I guess if we take a step back for a moment, people aren't always clear on why hackers are targeting their organizations. I mean, in the main, is it for just general data that they're trying to sell on to others? Or is it to get to organizations' secrets? Or is it a bit of both? Great question. It really depends on the attackers, their motivation, their methodology. So if we look at cyber insecurity, and if we think about the threat groups, if you like, we have the nation state level, which we've heard more and more about in the last few years. And at the nation state level, you have sophisticated, well-trained, you know, highly resourced attack groups. Uh, They are usually aiming to destabilize another country or disrupt or steal information. They may target private companies as a way of doing that. We then have financially motivated cyber criminals, and this is the group that has grown phenomenally in last few years. These are the criminals who have always been criminals, but now understand it's easier, faster, quicker, cheaper, more likely to succeed if they carry out their crime online. We then have script kiddies, you know, the teenagers in their bedrooms who are hacking, um, not because they are trained and elite hackers, but they're basically using online tools. They're, They're entering forums, cybercrime forums, getting a bit of knowledge and information and using other people's code. Um, We have the hacktivists, the online activists who will hack a company not for financial means, not to um, to really to make any money or carry out crime in that way, but to actually hack for a a purpose and ideology. And then, of course, we have people internal to an organization, the malicious and the non-malicious people who either are making a mistake or if they're malicious, who actually are purposely stealing information to profit from it or to cause problems for that organization. So that's a huge number of different actors there, uh, malicious actors as well. I mean, how are states setting up to fight that? And how are they working with businesses to ensure businesses know what's coming through, what the latest threats are? Yeah, I mean, we you're absolutely right. It's a huge amount. And even beyond that, you know, we have untargeted attacks. We have supply chain attack, attacks where one company is targeted to attack another company that they work with. So it's a really complicated problem. Um, we do see states taking more action on this than they ever have. So in the UK, the National Cybersecurity Centre is an absolute leader um, in terms of the, the global stage in this, if you like of working with organizations, of doing what they can at the national level to try and shut down this problem, of trying to open up communication and um, alert organizations more about the threats, to learn from organizations about the threats that they're facing, and really take action to try to tackle this problem at the national scale. So some of these actors are, in effect, auctioning off data or private information on the dark web. Um, Can you talk us through that and how it works? Sure. So um, we spoke a little bit before about the rise of cybercrime. And actually, this starts to tap into one of the reasons for the rise. And this is essentially cybercrime as a service. So what we've seen as a huge problem in the last few years is 
I don't have to be a trained hacker if I want to target a company. Um, I can actually go on the dark web and I can um, outsource a hack, you know, to a criminal that I can um, contact on the dark web. I can buy information in an auction um, or I can buy information that is, is being sold in forums. So essentially, if we think about the dark web, there are forums on there which sell um, information, which sell vulnerabilities, which sell the services of um, cyber criminals in the way that we see auctions operating on the clear web. So for organizations who are looking at proactively protecting their reputation, I mean, I've heard examples of um, journalists being active in the dark web to try and spot stories early. Should businesses also be there to try and have an early warning system for mentions of their business or members of their senior leadership team and areas like that? It's really worthwhile organizations trying to understand what information has leaked about them. And this, as you say, may be corporate information, it may be information about customers, it may be information about senior leadership, you know, how to contact them, um, email addresses, it may be passwords. We see large databases of passwords being sold, um, credit card details, all sorts of things. So it's really worthwhile for organizations, they may not be doing it themselves, but for example, to look at that services being offered by um, cybersecurity companies who will trawl the dark web, who will monitor it to see actually when your organization is, is, is alerted there, you know, when your um, organization is mentioned there, when information may become available. Because knowing about that is really the first step to being able to deal with it, mitigate it, shut it down. So this is happening to some of the biggest brands and biggest organizations on the planet at the minute. Uh, In theory, these organizations are secure. I mean, some of the major security state apparatus in the States was attacked over Christmas, I believe. Uh, And as a result, people are becoming very, very used to seeing headlines about cyber attacks. And I would suggest they're starting to get a bit bored of it. They don't necessarily take it in as much as they used to. That may be a danger, though, of course. But in your mind, when do cyber attacks turn into crises for organizations? What's the sort of tipping point? Really interesting question. And the the simple answer is sort of it depends. It depends if we're thinking about a crisis in terms of internal or external. If you're a small company, two, three, five people working um, and your laptops get infected with ransomware and you can't access your files, you can't operate as a company, that is a huge crisis. It may not be one that is even externally known. You may not have to notify anyone about it. Um, It may not impact the personal information of your customers, for example. But if you can't operate for a few days, that's going to have a really big impact and you're going to have to make the decision over how to manage um, that incident. Of course, if it gets to the point of impacting um, personal data, if it's at a point where people's financial personal data is compromised, um, if it's at a point where you have to make it publicly available then or publicly known, then you have a whole different kind of crisis where you're both trying to manage what's happening. You're trying to find out what's happening because it can take a very long time in a cyber incident to know what data is being impacted, how did they do it, who did it, and are they still in the system? Can they do more? What are they trying to achieve with this? So you're trying to deal with all of that and then manage, of course, the um, the external communications, communications internally, reputational damage, 
And sometimes you're dealing with very little known information, but you're under pressure to answer questions externally. So sometimes you don't know what information's been impacted. You don't know who's done it, why they've done it, whether you've stopped it, but you're being asked those questions externally. And that's a huge pressure. It's always very interesting to see how senior teams respond in those situations, particularly the bigger organizations, because I've seen a lot retreat into very small numbers of people to try and do it all because they're trying to protect the information in case the hackers are still in their system and gets more information about them and the approach they're wanting to take. And that can be extraordinarily dangerous because it leads to a vacuum of information. And it means you, we talk about human interaction on these things, uh, Jessica, but employees don't get to hear the detail of what is happening and feel safer about their operations, isn't it? Absolutely. It can be really challenging. I can understand uh, when senior leaders want to do that, feel more of a sense of control over what's happening and um, to feel like actually the less people that know, the better. But it can mean that your response is not as good as it could be because you might not be pulling in the people that you need to. As you say, it can open up this vacuum of information, very unsettling for employees, and it can lead them to actually maybe being asked questions by press or maybe making comments on social media and actually saying something that is more unhelpful because you haven't communicated with them. Um, there's, there's also some interesting challenges when it comes to cyber attacks. You may, for example, want to leave the attack running. So the tendency can be if you see that a system, a computer, whatever has been compromised, okay, we'll unplug it, we'll shut it down, we'll stop this happening. That might stop you from getting the answers that you want. So organizations, one of the first decisions they often have to take is, do we shut this down and isolate it and stop it getting worse and potentially not find out who was behind it? Or do we try and let this play out, potentially causing more damage, but getting some of the answers that could help us deal with this problem? That's always a really interesting um, and very difficult problem to try and decide upon early on. Yes, I guess. I guess that's up there with the whether you're going to pay out as well. And ransomware issues conversation, It's it, there's a tipping point of when it's good for you reputationally and when it's bad for you. Yeah. Paying out on ransomware is uh, one of the biggest issues that we're seeing organizations talk about over the last year. Ransomware attacks. I think it was first in sort of 2017. I heard it said, oh, 2017 is the year of ransomware. 2018, the year of ransomware. 2019, the year of ransomware. And then 2020, again, ransomware just got worse. And uh, we saw some really Um, large-scale ransomware attacks, so many organizations, public sector organizations, hospitals, schools being hit with ransomware. And again, this question is raised, should organizations pay the ransom? We know that in terms of paying the ransom, you've got a 50-50 chance because you're dealing with criminals, you know, over whether they're actually going to honor their word and give you the decryption key. Um, So paying the ransom doesn't necessarily mean it solves your problem. But for some organizations, I can see why they choose to do that, even though they are doing that, knowing that they are funding future crime um, and actually putting a target over their heads that they've paid once. And that that means they may be likely to pay again. No, I I mean, in, in reputational terms, prevention is always better than cure. So what I mean is you've talked about the magnitude of this problem. Is this something that's here forever? Is there any way out? I mean, what can organizations do to do things better? Yeah, great question. I think if we think about crime in the in the physical world, have we got rid of it? Will we ever get rid of it? No. 
unfortunately, there are always going to be malicious elements in society and people are always going to make mistakes. So I don't think we will ever get to the, the, the point where we have eradicated cybercrime. I don't think we'll ever get to the point where an organization can say they are 100% secure, which is why it's so important to be prepared for the fact that you may be hit with an incident. And that is prepared in all sorts of different ways. There's all sorts of ways you can prepare for that. And if you do, then you will save yourself time when an incident happens. You will respond to that incident more effectively. You will communicate more effectively. And um, you will, you'll find that it's not as stressful. So there's things you can do to prepare for an incident. And of course, there are lots of things you can do to minimize your likelihood of being attacked, to um, enable a response to be more effective if you are attacked, and to um, to kind of limit the, the damage that an attack could do. Yeah, it's a difference between a one-day story in bad news terms for companies and weeks of bad news. Because uh, if you've done all the things you can do, people accept that this happens and they know that people are going to be caught out as long as you haven't made silly mistakes. From your perspective, when you look at uh, businesses out there, who's got it right and who's got it wrong in terms of their crisis response to a cyber attack? Well, it's interesting you say, you know, whether it's a one day story or whether we talk about it weeks later, there's some incidents and the the poor response to some incidents that actually we're still talking about years later. So the classic one is Talk Talk. Unfortunately, um, Talk Talk was hit with a series of um, of cyber attacks um, a few years ago and very poorly responded to all of them. And then it culminated in one incident um, where they were compromised by a SQL injection and customer data was stolen and um, and the response to that is is classic textbook poor response where the CEO was on the news every day you know presumably doing her best to respond to it but she she wasn't well briefed she wasn't able to answer the technical questions um, and and actually just made the situation far far worse at the time there was um, a supermarket who suffered a compromise and actually it was worse in terms of the data that was stolen um, it was more significant but it barely made the headlines because they just issued a written response. They said what they knew. They answered questions. They were they were consistent and clear, but they didn't feed um, the engine of reporting around it. So that really fell by the wayside and nobody was talking about it. Um, we've seen some great responses, actually. I think organizations have got better. Um, so we have seen some great responses in just kind of the last six months. Um, Twitter were compromised in the summer of 2020, um, and they were compromised by voice phishing calls. So we're used to phishing emails. What we've seen in the last kind of 18 months or so is more organizations being compromised by telephone calls. Um, so it turned out that that um, employees in Twitter received these phone calls, people pretending to be from the IT department of Twitter. It was at the time where Twitter had employees being transitioned to working from home, like many organizations. So they had a, the, the criminals had a good scenario set up, said they were calling from IT, they needed passwords. They were able to get the passwords out of the employees and ultimately then access Twitter's systems and then reset the passwords of some of the highest profile Twitter users, you know, Barack Obama, Elon Musk, um, et cetera, and send out these sort of scam tweets. And Twitter did a really good job of responding to that. They, they responded quickly, clearly, they updated 
updated their response by saying um, what they knew. You know, they they were very clear and consistent. And that shows a great response. And one thing that I think people appreciated with that is they shared information that actually other organizations could use to alert their employees that this was happening. So at the same time, many other companies were being targeted with the same kind of attack. And because Twitter spoke about what happened to them, other companies are able to use that information and raise awareness that this this kind of threat is out there and is taking place. It's an amazing example because it's one that we all saw on the headlines at the time. Uh, It was a massive story, but they did a very good job, as you say, to curtail it because they probably had practiced and were ready for dealing with such breaches. And that's the key here. It's like any crisis management approach. It's being prepared to deal with them. Now, as you sort of stated, though, throughout this, these sometimes these attacks can go on for a very long period, particularly if someone's letting it run out to get more information. And even if it is complete as an attack, the investigation into it can take months. How does that work its way through? What advice do you give to leaders in terms of how they communicate during a very long, sustained period of time when they haven't much information to communicate with? You, you mentioned Talk Talk, for instance. That was a week or two they were very uh, front of camera. Um, but sometimes this is months and months. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one thing is to provide information as soon as you can, but um, but don't talk yourself into a corner. So BA, for example, when they were compromised, they, they responded quite quickly and they said what information had not been compromised, but they didn't say what information had been compromised, presumably because they didn't know um, at that point. So it was good that they responded quickly, but because their response was patchy and raised questions and didn't say just, you know, we're investigating, we're going to let you know as soon as we can, it actually created this vacuum and it meant they were open to criticism people saying oh you know you're trying to spin this you're trying to just give the information that you want to be known um and so it actually opened them up to to more criticism even though they were probably just trying to respond as quickly as they could so it's about um giving the information that you can when you can being consistent and um and not feeling too much pressure to try to sort of say everything that you can all at once. People understand now, I think, that actually cyber attacks are happening. People understand it can take time to uncover what's happened. So it's about really being considerate, being transparent, being consistent. So react, but just don't overreact is what you're saying in a sense. Perfect. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Now, look, I'm going to turn it back on you for a moment because we've been talking a lot about what you see out there from a cyber attack perspective and how organizations do it. But when you're busy, when you're working all hours, how do you deal with those situations when you've got your own crises going on, et cetera? I mean, what do you do to get away and get a moment of uh, relaxation or sanity back? Well, I mean, I start with a cup of tea, of course, because who doesn't? Always got to have a good cup of tea. Um, No, for me, it's about some kind of physical exercise. So I find walking, yoga, Pilates, something where you can just kind of clear your mind um, and try to to actually take a moment away from what's happening, I think is, is really important. Getting some fresh air, getting some perspective. And that actually means you're better able to deal then with the, the hecticness, with the, the problem, with the crisis, whatever it may be. You have to take a moment out to look after yourself. 
It's very true, particularly as we see these crises, as we just said, sustaining themselves for long periods. It's so important to stay above the uh, nonsense uh, for certain moments to think clearly. Now, I'm just going to get you to finish off with maybe three top tips for those people listening from a crisis management and crisis communications perspective for cyber attacks. What are your top three tips for those people? So one thing is to to be prepared to know that cyber attacks are here to stay. Uh, that doesn't mean that they are inevitable, um, but it does mean that they're increasing and all organizations can be vulnerable to them. You may think you're not a target, but we see all sorts of organizations being caught up in incidents. So be prepared and understand what information is most valuable to you and what information would be most valuable to an attacker. And that might be, they might be different sets of information. So really know what information actually may be targeted and practice. So basically have a crisis plan, have a crisis communications plan and make sure you run that through and you practice because you don't want the first time that you are issuing a crisis communication um, or the first time you are enacting a crisis plan to be when you're actually dealing with a crisis. That will leave you unprepared and it will mean that your response is not as considered and as, as effective as it could be. Well, that's a great place to end it, uh, Jessica. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through something that's sadly all too common today. By the signs of things, you're going to be even busier than you are now going forward. But thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Pleasure. Thanks so much. It was so interesting to chat to Jessica about something that is becoming the scourge of businesses across the globe and that we all know is causing many C-suite sleepless nights, sadly. And I was really struck by what she said about reacting, but not overreacting in a cyber attack. That's a judgment for every crisis situation that we see played out. Um, how do you approach that when you're around the table, Gary? Well, I think it's crucial not to panic. And I think often as a crisis emerges or something like a cyber attack emerges, it's very easy to see the thing that's right in front of you and uh, focus all of your efforts into that without necessarily thinking through the consequences of what might happen as a result of what you're doing. I think there's a couple of things that anyone responding to a crisis needs to do quickly. And the first is get the relevant expertise into the room. In this situation, we'd be talking about cyber, we're talking about legal, as well as communications experts, so that you make sure that you get the best advice possible. I think in these situations, and again, we've talked about this before, I don't think that always following your hunch is the best approach. Uh, get the advice that you need around the table and, that's good, and be prepared to listen to it. I think the second thing is don't hope it's all going to go away quietly. Um, and I think that's something that we've all seen at different points with different uh, clients. Work out who needs to know about this, prioritize the relevant groups, map out the most effective channel for reaching them, uh, and then get your communications cadence in place and ready to go. Now, exactly when you communicate and exactly what you'll say, uh, that will depend on the exact circumstances of whatever it is that you're facing. But I think there is a general rule of crisis communications and that is that you'd rather the most important people to your business hear about the issue and the plan from you rather than from somebody else or from the media and that's because you can provide context you can provide a plan and you can provide reassurance and i think sticking to those principles should put you in good stead so that's really understanding your objectives gary of what you're trying to achieve with your response is key and what about you karen I think 
every crisis communication does require some level of judgment and based on the situational analysis and what's happening. Um, and a lot of times we're balancing um, public relations or reputation with legal advice <laughs> and the risk. The lawyers are mm -hmm. telling you to say nothing. We're telling you to say everything. And so sometimes you, you find a good happy medium there. But I'm a big believer in right-sizing your approach based on the acuity of the situation. And for me, when I think about acuity, it's velocity, how quickly the issue is moving, the level of awareness, is it growing, is it not? And influence, who is aware of the situation, who's commenting, is it a national news outlet, is it a cabinet minister? And generally, if there's very low awareness and risk, you wanna communicate based on the level of impact. Um, so very targeted notifications. You don't want to broadcast broadly if you're not necessarily um, required to, or if it doesn't, the situation doesn't call for it. And I think cybersecurity is somewhat unique in that, you know, in situations where you have a privacy breach, you may have formal or regulatory requirements for notifications or contractual obligations for notifications. And so understanding those requirements from a regulatory perspective and in consultation with legal counsel insurance, I think it's quite helpful. But at, you know, at the end of the day, that direct to stakeholder communication based on level of impact and awareness, being timely and balancing what you're able to share is allowing you to communicate with confidence if you are experiencing a cyber attack. And being prepared is key for this, Karen, because businesses can do all they can to protect their data, but they also know that they will be hacked at some point. It's a matter of when rather than if. So as long as you've done the right things in how you set up to combat attacks, it is how you respond to one that is the real threat to your reputation, not the actual hack itself. Yet despite that, so few people have set up their businesses with well-rehearsed plans and protocols in place to ensure they're ready for that. And that's unforgivable given the prevalence of these attacks these days and really, really worrying. So that's it for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed this episode of White Swan, the crisis podcast. Thanks very much to Karen and Gary. Until the next episode, stay safe and don't forget to protect your passwords and update your firewalls. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com. Hanover.